Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, have we got an incredible story for you today? Because my guest is Taban Sharesh, the founder of The Lotus Flower, the nonprofit which is empowering vulnerable women and girls affected by conflict and humanitarian crises, and an ambassador for the global youth movement, One Young World. Taban's own remarkable story started in Kurdistan, where her family were amongst the many persecuted by Saddam Hussein's regime in the Kurdish genocide. Her horrific ordeal saw Taban imprisoned at the age of just four and later narrowly escaping a mass live burial. Coming to the UK as a refugee in 1988, Taban built her life here, later moving into asset management. But in 2014, amidst the persecution of the Yazidis by Islamic State, she turned her attention to humanitarian and peace building, supporting survivors of genocide and women and girls displaced by conflict. And her tip for life is this, every problem has a solution. To tell us more, Taban, welcome to Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have having a discussion and chat with you. Oh, I tell you, I have so enjoyed reading your story. It's such an inspiration. And I just think that that tip for life, every problem has a solution, sums up your attitude, sums up the kind of the energy and the effervescence of everything about you. Tell, tell us about it, Taba. I think from, well, I mean, from the moment that I was born, I was born into conflict and war and so. So I've all, my whole life I've known obstacles and hurdles and struggles and so we've learned to become very resilient from a very young age mm. and having survived so many things and just having near escapes from death on many occasions I think that as well as other life issues and problems, you know, health issues, lots of different things have just shown me actually these things happen, but somehow every problem has a solution. It's mm-hmm. just how you kind of look at it. And for me, for example, yes, my past history is quite traumatic in terms of what I've been through. I could have taken that and just done nothing with it or let it consume me. But I decided actually I'd rather do something positive with it and stop so, other so, people from experiencing that. That so was a choice. Because I mean, the thing, you could quite easily be understood if, if you're, I mean, surviving child genocide, I mean, the, the, the sheer horror of the things that you live through. I mean, you, you could quite easily understand if you took a much more pessimistic view about life and your tip was something very different to the one that you've given us. This, I suppose, is down to a personal agency, personal choice, a decision about the sort of life that you, you wanted to live, was it? It's 100% a choice, I think. I think it depends on what journey you're on and how far you've kind of gone through your healing journey as well. But I do believe there comes a time where you have to make that decision and you have to conjure up the strength and the resilience to find solutions to problems and actually carry on and move on. And how can you take that and turn it into a positive positive impact into the world? Let's go back to Erbil in, in Kurdistan and your very earliest years, so before, I suppose, the horror of what you were to go on to experience, but actually, do, do you have many recollections about about the sort of your, your, your very early childhood there? Yeah, I mean, you'd think that I wouldn't because I was only four at the time and very young, but there are particular moments that I remember very clearly. I guess what I don't remember as a child is the emotions that go with them. They're almost like images in in my head. Um, I remember the moments we were taken to prison, the, the, the scene in prison, and then... Like the whole journey has been filled in with my mum because, you know, she, she was in prison with, with me and my grandparents as well. So there's definitely, definitely moments in that two year journey of just being taken to prison, but also fleeing, being in hiding and then arriving in the UK. And 
yeah, it's it's surreal to think that your memories can go back as far as that. But they, for me, it can. It's not the whole journey; it's parts of it. Mm. I mean, I mean, you, you went through something at age four that, that no child should expect to go through in terms of its its effect on you, in terms of how it went on to shape you, and 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 really, I suppose the, those lasting effects. Do, do you have a view? Do you think about? actually how that that sheer horrific cauldron of experience shaped the person that you went on to be I think so definitely it's very difficult not to experience something like that and for it not to have an impact on you I think it's had positive impact and it's also had negative impacts in terms of the negative impacts I think experiencing such trauma not only has an impact on you physically but also mentally and emotionally and you don't really realize how that creeps up in life and it shows up in different ways and I think it shows up in adulthood and when you start slowly uncovering those pieces and just, you know, peeling back those layers to, to figure out why certain things are the way they are in your adult life. And then you realise, actually, I've not had a, a normal childhood. No, <laughs> so no. that might be why. But then when you realise that for me, I started that healing journey and it also impacted me, I think, physically. You know, I've got Crohn's disease where and Crohn's disease is an autoimmune disease where the body attacks the digestive system Mm. and for me I feel like my trauma has been held in my body and it's manifested into a physical illness and then in terms of the positive I think I've taken my experience and gone well I've experienced something quite traumatic I have to turn it into a positive how do I turn my pain into a purpose and power for other people and Mm. so that's where I've decided to channel my energy and decided to actually help other women and girls, including men and boys, to actually prevent them from experiencing what I experienced, but also if they've experienced it, providing the tools and the platforms for them to be able to heal and and grow from it. Mm. Do you think that, that, that trust was a was a, an issue that, that you took away from that in terms of being in an environment where presumably people in uniform turned up? Where how did you go on to sort of establish your faith in? humanity your faith in a system your faith in society if you will do you think in terms of the person that you've gone on to be I mean in terms of what we've experienced from a young age the genocide being taken to prison and all the persecutions that we've faced with Saddam Hussein they're all very traumatic but then when we arrived in the UK we actually had a lot of support and we were Mm. very welcome so we we saw we saw the genuine loving compassionate side of humans Mm. and I think for me that really really helped I know there were so many organizations that kind of stepped in and tried to help us and you know going through their programs and learning how to kind of relive again and rebuild your life so through that you slowly start building trust but also I think the key is resilience you develop this inner resilience that some people find it very hard to understand. It's because you've had to just survive and carry on, survive and carry on. And so you, it becomes a, a natural instinct. So if, with that, I think with resilience, you have to have a certain level of trust, but mm. also knowing that some people will betray you. Some people will lie to you. Some people will break your trust and being very aware of that and accepting when it does happen, you just move on. <laughs> like every problem has a solution. And that's why Everyone- the quote for me is so, is so um, strong. Well, and I, and I think also there probably was a, 
you know, a, a, a sort of thread back to another member of your family on that it, it, with, with the influence of your mum. I mean, you talked about her that she instilled the true essence of resilience in me. And resilience is clearly a word that, you know, probably unsurprisingly, given what you've experienced, is a very important, I guess, watchword in terms of actually, I guess, a guide for life in terms of going through those hard yards. Tell us about your mum and how she instilled that that true essence in you. I think as an adult, I can look back. I, I have a 19-year-old son, so being a parent, I can look back and assess what my mum must have gone through at that time. And we were quite similar ages when we've had the children. So for her to go through what she went through with two children, two young children, is unbelievable. I, I can't even fathom it. You know, she was a young working mum who had to pretend that her husband had left her in a community where this is taboo because my dad was a poet and a freedom fighter. She had to pretend that he was no longer in their life. So she worked as a single mum. She was interrogated constantly by the secret police at work whenever she took time off because they were suspicious that he, she was visiting my dad. And then she's taken to prison, separated from her son. You know, they hid my brother when we were taken to prison. And then taken her four-year-old. So they've taken the child, you're with your in-laws, and you're taken to prison. You walk into a prison where the first prison was just a normal prison, so you had lots of different types of criminals in there. And for you to walk in as a young mother and a child and your in-laws and not be a criminal and then be interrogated for information, but extremely strong and standing in her power mm. and not giving anything away and still defending, you know, me and, and the Kurdish cause, I guess. And going to the second prison where it, it, was, it was an ethnic camp for Kurds and they, we were all going to be killed. It was just when the names would be called out. And for her to fight for space in that prison for her child and her mother-in-law and go through that and then go into hiding. Well, before that was when we were going to be buried alive. Now, mm. as an adult, she knew exactly what was happening. For me as a child, I just witnessed lots of adults crying when we walked out of the prison and there was buses and two diggers. <clears throat> and I just saw these adults all crying and screaming. I didn't understand what it was about. She did. She knew exactly what it was. She knew that this is a way that they were going to be buried alive and this is it. And then being rescued from that and then going into hiding. making. Tell, tell, tell us about the rescue, because I mean, that, that must have been a, you know, because what I'm thinking about is the rescue and then coming to the UK, a, a completely... Oh, yeah, well, there was there was a long period before we came to the UK from the rescue. And so what had happened was we were in prison and they called some family names out and we were on that list. And all the adults, you know, screamed and st started wailing because they could see the diggers and they knew what that meant. And at that time, Saddam Hussein's regime had different ways of torturing people before they killed them. And the mass live burials was one of them. So what they would do is they would dig the hole, make everyone lie in them alive and then slowly sh shovel soil over them. So it was a very, very slow death. And everyone knew this. We knew all the, you know, execution tactics and the genocide tactics and how they kind of did it. 
So we were set, we were on the bus and halfway through driving, it stopped and there was some sort of deal happening outside. And at that time, you had Kurds working for Saddam Hussein who were actually working for Kurds and rescuing them in situations like this. Mm. But you also had Kurds working for Saddam Hussein who were actually working for Saddam Hussein. And we had experience of both. So the first experience was... There was an exchange that we weren't aware of. The buses started driving off and halfway through it stopped again and the doors opened and two men said, we're Kurdish, we're not going to kill you. We're going to let you go, but you need to disappear and pretend you're dead because you're on the death list. And if you're caught, you'll be killed instantly. So from that... We managed to make our way to the main road. Like it was, it was, it was in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and strangely, my grandfather stopped a taxi and it happened to be one of his old students. So he used to be a teacher. And here he just said, what, what, what are you doing here in the middle of nowhere with your family? And you couldn't really say anything to anyone at that time. So we just said, don't ask any questions, just drive us back to the city. And we drove back, but we didn't go back to my grandparents' house, so my mum's parents, because it's the first place that they would search. So we decided to go to my mum's stepsister's house because it's the least likely place they would have searched. And when we walked in, they'd already kind of started, I'd say, what was our funeral? They were wearing black and crying and like... So when we walked in, I think it was a surprise, but the message had got to them that we'd been buried alive because that's the last that they'd heard. And after that, we went, my mum my decided to, well, she had received a message to leave the city. So she decided to leave my brother, my older brother, with my mum's family because they didn't really know he existed because they'd not taken him with us. And so in terms of safety, she thought, let's just rescue him. And if anything happened to us, then at least he's still alive. So we went to the south of Iraq, which is in Diwania. And I have, she has a stepbrother, so my uncle. And we were in hiding for about three months. I couldn't go out because I spoke Kurdish and I was a child. So you couldn't Mm. really control me. But my mom spoke (laughs) Arabic, so she was able to go out. But it was, we were in hiding. And she said, I can't kill myself or my kids for you. We need to get out of this country. So we made our way to Iran. We picked up my brother. And this is during the Iran and Iraq war, where bombs are dropping constantly. And they Mm. mainly drop in the rural areas. That's the only place that we could hide. We couldn't go back into the cities. So we would be going into rural areas which were being bombed. We'd stop by and, you know, these are deserted villages and towns where people have completely left. So it was all, it was just us and some fighters. And we spent 12 months doing that, just dodging bombs and bullets and managed to get to Iran on horseback smuggled in and we were waiting for my dad and Saddam Hussein had hired a husband and wife to poison a group of men and he was on that list because he was a Peshmerga with a pen he was a poet as well so he had a pen and a gun so for him it was he he was definitely targeted and they laid out this feast for I think it was around 14 men they sat down and ate with them. They, they'd put the poison in a yogurt drink, which we have, which we call Mastal. It's like Aidan. And they sat down. They didn't drink the drink because they knew the poison was in there. So nobody suspected anything because they were all eating. And the men that gulped the drinks down and finished it, I think two died on the spot. And three were critically poisoned, which included my dad. And they were taken to Iran which is when we were reunited with him, but then Amnesty International picked up on the story and 
flew him to the UK for medical treatment. And we had to wait a year before we could come. We needed to wait for him to survive before we could mm. arrive in the UK. Oh, I don't know. I, do you know, <laughs> I, I, it takes a lot to get me lost for words, Tara. I mean, what a story. I mean, incredible. I mean, the hairs on the back of my neck are stood up. I mean, so that that happened, and then you came to the UK. Yeah. And yeah. I was six, yeah. You're six years old, you grow up here, you finish up getting into a career in asset management. Presumably you're thinking that nightmare is behind me. It, 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 that, that experience, that, 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 whole, that, that whole world, but yet you chose to go back to try and make a difference. Let's look at, I suppose, the chapters that, that get you to becoming the activist that goes on to create Lotus Flower and the work that, that, you, that you've done. And I suppose you mentioned in starting that, I suppose this line of the stories, that you mentioned that it was a welcoming place. We often hear that the UK isn't that welcoming sometimes, but I suppose today in the debate that we hear, but, but for you it was a different experience in terms of that, that sort of arrival, that sort of experience and, and, and growing up. Yeah, and we're going back 32 years so I think the environment then was very different. We, we, were, we were welcomed in. You know, I remember we have, we're still in touch with them. We had an English family that kind of took us un, under their wings and they'd, you know, teach us English and we'd spend Christmases with them and we'd go there on weekends and spend time around, you know, the countryside in the UK. And so we had lots of different types of support and integration you know, we, we settled in quite quickly. Obviously, as a diaspora, I think all diasporas face this. When you've been forced to flee your home in such a traumatic experience, your heart is still at home. Mm-hmm. It was very difficult for my mum and dad to suddenly just be somewhere completely new. I mean, for us as well, but I think it was it's harder for adults to adjust you know but my dad kind of hung on by continuing his writing and continuing his politics with passion my mum you know she looked after us and integrated into the community found other Kurdish families and so we had I'd say a a safe upbringing and for me I ended up working so I was a digital project manager in an asset management firm but Mm. I kind of got into that world but in but in so do it did you at that point feel fully integrated this is where my life is this is where where I am or or were there still these sort of yeah because obviously you wouldn't in over time decide to do something very different than the world of asset management I'm trying to get a sense of where your head was yeah Yeah. (laughs) there was more to it I got married at quite young age so I ended up kind of following quite traditional steps back home and I don't know if that's you know, at that time, being part of the diaspora, you're, you're kind of holding on to cultural norms. Unfortunately, it was a very abusive marriage. And so for six and a half years, I, I had to endure something that I never thought I would. And actually, by the time I'd come out of that, at a point where it was taboo to leave a marriage in my culture, that was a very, very strong step in itself. And for me to decide, actually, I need to figure out a way of supporting my son and myself and keeping us safe, but also allowing us to live a life. 
And the world of asset management and finance and working in the city provided that. It provided me that security blanket. It provided mm. me that safety. But there was this whole past that I'd never really kind of gone back to or looked at or talked about, you know. And do you mind if I ask you th- that word safety when, when you say it? I mean, I mean, we can all use it. But for you, presumably, that meant a huge amount. Oh, it's... It's massive because the, from the moment that I've been born, my body has always been in fight and flight mode. That's all it knows. That's mm. all it knows is fight and flight. So for it to suddenly feel a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more safe and seek that comfort, that means a lot. And I think it's, it's, it's not just me, it's, it's all survivors of conflict and um, displacement that fight and flight mode is just automatically triggered in you and you're always seeking safety. What's the safest option for yourself and your family? Mm. And, you know, in that particular situation, not only had we experienced it with our past, but through my marriage. And then I think I'd got to a settled point when I was a single mum. And but I felt very disconnected from the world because of what I'd experienced. And I always knew that there, sh- that there must be more. But so, so, so when you say disconnected... Was that with the world in terms of what you were looking at externally or was it from within as well? I mean, because obviously in 2014, you would shake it all back up again by going back to Kurdistan. So I'm trying to get a sense of who the person, the Taban of 2030, let's say, in terms of what was really going on inside in terms of how you felt and what you were looking at. 2013, I think something was simmering inside of me. And because I'd been so broken by what I'd experienced by my past and the marriage and everything, but I knew that there was something more that I was meant to be doing. And it was simmering, I'd say, really, Mm. really simmering in 2013. And then on April 2014, I was asked to do genocide remembrance talk at the House of Lords. And I've never spoken about my experience before. And... For me, it's so surreal that that happened because I was someone that couldn't talk. I couldn't look at anyone. I was too scared of everything. I just, I couldn't verbalize anything. I couldn't hold a conversation, social setting. So for me to actually go up and do that talk was was massive. And there was a step before that. And that's where the... I guess the asset management world came in. They make you do like trainings. I'm sure this is quite common across a lot of organizations. They make you do like annual trainings and personal development. And my time had come to kind of choose something. And I chose to do presentation skills because I couldn't really, I, I hated meetings. I couldn't talk. I just thought I need something to help me speak. And we were in small groups and the first lesson, the trainer, Julian, I'll never forget him. He asked me to stand up and say a few words. He said, just talk about anything. It can be something you're interested in, something that you do at work. And me being zero confidence, very scared of talking. I didn't know what to say. So I just started speaking about social media because digital marketing was what we were doing. And he stopped me halfway and said, Taban, can you choose something a little bit more... Um, you know, something you're interested in, maybe, or maybe a memory. How about you do a memory? And as soon as he said that, I instantly went to my the point when I was taken to prison. So I started describing my journey from the moment I was at my grandma's house to being taken to prison. 
And I must have gone off and completely just described everything. By the end of it, I stopped and kind of snapped out of it and realized that everyone was just completely silent and their jaws had dropped and they went. And Julian said, is that a real memory or... Oh, yeah, that's my childhood. That's <laughs> so incredible. Was, yeah, they, they were shocked. And I realised, oh, wow, maybe I can do this. So when they asked me to... So, so you found thing, your voice? I found my voice in that moment. Mm. And when I did that talk at the House of Lords, Julian came, he said, just carry them on that journey, just like you did with us. Describe what you see in your head. And I did, and it got a standing ovation and tears. And I, I'd never realised that sharing a story could have such a big impact. I'd, I'd never, never known it to. I'd never shared my story before. I'd had no reason to. And because it was for Genocide Remembrance Day, for me, I had a reason to share it. Mm-hmm. And word had got round in the office and, you know, everyone was very proud. And so my CEO knew of my history and my background. And at that moment, I realised this is summer 2014. Okay, Taban, you have to do something. Mm. I don't know what it is. I don't know how it's going to happen. If not now, when? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. But I, I almost needed somebody to say that back to me. I needed to hear it. So I asked for a meeting with my CEO, who I have never had a meeting with. We don't really have a working relationship with. I I, I don't know what I was thinking. But for me, I just thought he has set up this organization, which is now global. He must have had a vision. He must have seen something. Therefore, he knows a thing or two. So he'll be able to direct in the right way. As you do, you go and ask your CEO for careers advice. And I was really nervous about this meeting, but I think I walked in and said something like, uh, this has not got anything to do with work. It's more about, I need to figure out where I need to go in life. And mm. I'm at a crossroads and you know my history and I just don't know what to do. And he turned around and said, Taban, you're too special for that corner desk. Can you please go and fly? And I think the moment he said that, the penny just dropped. And I thought, wow, Mm. somebody Mm. else sees something that I don't see yet. And that was it. I handed in my notice. I... (laughs) Ended up, when you leave work, you have leave and do. Some people know that you've left. Some people don't know that you've left. And this is a city where you've got a floor full of screens, which have got BBC on all the time from like morning till night. And I'd left work. And the day that I arrived in Kurdistan, this is during the time that ISIS had gone into the region. So it was it was the height of people being displaced. And there was... 30,000 Yazidis trapped on Mount Sinjar. And this is my first day. Mm. So I was contacted by a journalist to help get him on one of the helicopters to share the story, which I didn't even know about. And when we did that, that report went global. So everyone at work saw it. I mean, it's, it's only been a week or two that I've left work and they're going, hold on, what's the man doing? Flying yeah. over ISIS. <laughs> and- and, and, and you did incredible things. I mean, you had 15 months over there helping to establish a refugee camp, as you say, helping the Yazidi community. But you returned 15 months later and you described yourself as feeling emotionally wrecked by yeah. the experience. I'm, I'm interested in this fight or flight person is that obviously that was another massive dose of that experience, as you say, in, in that world. But when you came back, were you still despite feeling, you know, as to use your word, wrecked, did, were you wrecked in a way that you felt, 
I might need to just back off from this and go back into the corporate world or was the die cast? Were you, were you just needing to refresh and reorganize? And, and does that then take us to Lotus Flower? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I need to put it in context. So from day one, my day one of starting work with Rwanga Foundation at that time was flying over ISIS in a helicopter that oh. the pilot turns around and says, there are three ways that you can die. The helicopter can malfunction. We can be overloaded with people coming on board or we'll get shot down by ISIS. <laughs> and just spreading those things out. And the next day, the same plane crashing and the pilot dying, you know, it was so frontline. It was so extreme, but we just got on with it because the situation was so desperate and you could see your people kind of needing help. And so for us, we were on call 24 hours a day. And because we were local, I think the international organizations took a lot longer to move and act. So the locals were the ones on first response. And I've not really had any training. It brought back a lot of my childhood memories, but we just continued every single day for 15 months, nonstop. So mm. like 27 days a week, I'd say 24 hours mm. on call. And it was extreme. It was extreme. You had 2.6 million people displaced overnight. You had a conflict that was happening. And so when I came back to the UK, I was so drained emotionally, mentally, physically. But also I couldn't, I just could not relate to being here. I'd mm. go on the tube and go, what the hell? Why? What's that about? Well, yeah. yeah. You've got nothing to be angry about. You've got nothing to be stroppy mm. about. You're safe. And, you know, all these things started coming up. And I realized there's absolutely no way I can go back to a normal nine to five. There's just no way that I can do that because I can't relate to it. I, I wouldn't be able to cope. I wouldn't be able to concentrate. I tried to go to a few interviews and fully qualified for the role but I found myself talking myself out of it or talking them out of trying to hire me because I suppose it's where your heart was taking you I mean let's just sort of move on to Lotus Flower because obviously you, you then took I suppose from a general experience in the humanitarian space into a very specific NGO space of of projects which are based on assisting and helping women and girls and and, and in terms of how you knew that that was your calling and you've done some extraordinary things with it in terms of how you've you've provided voices for women i, I love the boxing sisters initiative all the things that, that you're doing which makes it such a vibrant interesting organization but i suppose this is almost like the social entrepreneur in you isn't it in terms of actually finding an idea and going big with it yeah I think because I had that firsthand experience on the ground, I knew directly where the need was because we'd worked very closely with the women and girls. We realized that international organizations were setting things up, but then leaving these structures after a year and handing over or not doing much with it. And I knew at that time that they're going to be in these camps for a very long time without knowing when they'd have to leave. And even if they left, they'd still need support. And for me, I remembered all the organizations that I'd had, we'd had support with and had made a difference in our life and really changed things for us. And there was a massive need and wanting to help women and girls. I think for me, it, it, it highlighted my childhood experience of my mother and myself going through that journey and experiencing things. And I wanted to be able to help by providing a platform where we, we just provide tools. You know, they're very resilient. They're very strong. They've got a very strong voice, but we just needed to provide those tools for them mm. to be able to really, really thrive. So from there, I think this is where my, I guess my 
corporate background has really helped and my project management background has helped because I've, I've gone or to van you can't you can't fix all the problems in the world just pick one and then you can grow it from there and then you can test and because I was in agile digital management I treated it very agile we'd, we'd do something and then we'd pilot and then we'd test and then we'd see if it works and then see if it needs changing tweaking um, get feedback so we worked very closely with the women and girls and got them to tell us what do they want what do they need mm. how, how, did, how did boxing sisters come about oh that that took two years for us to take it in so for when lotus actually started i started it in my living room with absolutely no money and mm. no idea of where it was going to go but we knew what it kind of looked like and we just add projects to it and i think boxing sisters the women and girls especially the women and girls from the yazidi community the atrocities that they faced from ISIS being imprisoned, enslaved, used as sex slaves, raped was just so far reaching and so traumatic. We didn't really, we don't have enough therapists in the region to actually support in that sense. And I'd visited a commander's, like a military force set up for Yazidi women. Mm-hmm. And when I went there, I could see that some of them were collapsing, some of them were angry, but they were in training. And I asked the commander, we've got women Peshmerga, so freedom fighters. Kurds have always had it. You know, my mum's generation were part of it. And so it's nothing new for us. But for me, it felt like something new. And I asked him, why have you specifically set this up? And he said, well, they're really, really angry and they need to channel their anger somewhere. And this is how you take control? Yeah. By by the training? Yeah. And and it's it's they decide. So if they want to, a lot of them wanted to fight, a lot of them wanted to retaliate or do something. So they provided the training facility for them to be able to do that. Now, they didn't have to fight. You, you could choose not to fight. You could choose to fight. It, it was up to you. But it was the main aim was to help them channel that anger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that really, really interesting and thought, well, how could we implement that and see if, if it's possible? Well, obviously, we can't set up a military force. But looking into it, boxing was a physical outlet, an emotional outlet, and it helped you channel and it helped you build confidence. And it provided the women with something to do and we can hire them and train them. And so it becomes income generating. So we are some of the women and especially some of our community outreach staff in, in the centers. And actually they asked for it. They mm. said, yeah, let's do this. We, we'd like to start, we should start boxing. And we had zero backlash from the community because I, I never thought that we'd be able to take boxing at that time to women and girls, but it's been so successful. And I think the reason why it's been successful is because the community really trust us, really, really trust us. We've been there for a long time. We've been working with them. We've been building things with them and not just at them. Um, and I think that's really, really important is to include them and give them space to share things and share what they need rather than just tell them that they're going to be mm. doing this. All the- and, and I suppose that is Taban the activist. But there is another story of you as the advocate. Now, you are an ambassador for, for One Young World. Um, you've spoken at both the Bogota and Dublin summits. And, and the word that's used to describe your contribution there is, is unforgettable. I mean, it's, it, 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 it sounds like that, that sort of that training, that presentation training has, has, has gone a long way because now it's not just the doing, it's actually the advocacy that seems to be a really important part of, of your role in making the case. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think Julian played a massive role in helping me tap into my voice. It was always there, but it was figuring out how to bring that to life. And he made me realize that actually it's, it's all inside of me. It doesn't matter if I get a word wrong or it doesn't matter if I say something wrong. Those tiny details don't really matter. I've lived and experienced something not many people have. And for me to have a purpose and a reason to share that makes it part of the impact. So for me, I think when I, when I talk about it, it's kind of bringing light to not just my story because it's not it's not unique. I don't think, so. I mean, it, it's unique in a way, but then it's not also unique because it still happens. It happens on such a large scale. I mean, we're, what, 32 years after and it's still happening. Nothing's changed. In fact, in terms of like refugees and displaced people around the world, it's reached 100 million. It's increased and got worse. So it's even more important, I think, for people to share stories and not just me, but we encourage, we, we, we provide the skills mm to the women and girls to be able to do that. We don't make them do it. We, we teach them how they can if they wanted to creatively outlet their um, stories. And, and I suppose to my last question is, is be the change you wish to see in the world, which is, you know, your, your, your quote for life from Mahatma Gandhi. Do you feel, I mean, you've, you've made that point there about that, that things are, are, are definitely not good. I mean, I mean, but, but presumably you are, you are still fueled by your tip that, which is that every problem has a solution. So you feel, I mean, presumably you still feel positive about your chance to affect change in the world. Massively, massively. That can't stop. I can't have gone through everything that I've, I've experienced and then all the things that I've experienced in trying to help through Lotus to only just stop there. I think there's so much change that we can do in the world. I think if we collaboratively come together and figure out how we can provide solutions to different problems for example I mean mental health is another big thing that I really really do um, advocate for and got another charity setting up for that which is therapy beyond borders but that's come out of the lotus flower because there's such a massive need for vulnerable groups that don't have access to therapy mm. so it, it really is taking a problem and looking at it from quite a small lens and seeing how you can find a solution to that problem and i believe everything does have a solution what a, what a wonderful place to leave it Tabitha, thank you so much for sharing thank your you. story and and i i i, I can tell you what, what an inspiring interview and it's no, no surprise that you're one of the, the 25 incredible women honoured for their impact in the world as part Thank of the Put Her Forward initiative, one of 25 statues in, erected in central London in, in 2018. There we have it, listeners. Thank you so much Thank for joining us, so Taban. We have wonderful to interview on Changemakers. Thank you so much for having me. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?